Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. We've got the lion and the lamb. Uh, Beautiful. Uh, The lion and the lamb all entangled there with the crown. Too cool. That's what we've been experiencing so far as we've been studying, isn't it? We've seen both the lamb. We've seen uh, in prophecy and prophecy fulfillment. We've seen the lion of Judah. We're going to see more of the lion of Judah. Uh, Even as we study tonight, we'll see some uh, idioms in that way. Uh, But before we do that, I want to do some recap Some recap to remind us of where we've been so we fully understand where we're going. So we've been moving, as we've been studying last week through uh, Revelation chapter uh, 8 and 9, we've been moving through the seven trumpets of Revelation. And tonight we're going to continue as well. So can I see that graphic one more time, uh, right off the bat? As we moved through these trumpets, we saw the third, the thirds is what you'd call it. A third of the trees and grass were burned. The second trumpet sounded, angel sounded a trumpet, and a mountain of fire caused the third of the sea to be bitter. Wormwood, water's bitter, excuse me, a third of the animals in sea life were dead in the second one. The water's bitter in the third one. Uh, the sun and the stars and the moon darkened a third, a third. And then we moved into these three woes with the fifth trumpet and the Euphra- and the the sixth trumpet as far as a third of the men being slain Euphra- angels being released from the bottomless pit demon locusts all kinds of stuff if if you missed last week i encourage you to go back and watch it it was really fascinating but then we hit this little break a mighty angel with a little book appears and that's where we're going to spend some time today can i see this next graphic We've actually noticed as we've moved through Revelation, from chapter 6 uh, we is where we got into the four horsemen of the apocalypse when we started breaking these seals. The, the, there's a scroll in the hand of the Father in the throne room, and who was able to take it? None other than Jesus. He was able to take it, and he began to break the seals, and as he broke the seals, we saw different things happening. But right before the seventh seal was broken, we had a break. Every chapter was it was a seal until, or not every chapter. Excuse me. We see all of the seals in succession breaking until we get to chapter seven, uh, and there was a parenthesis, and that's where we saw the hundred and forty-four thousand sealed. But then we picked up right again in uh, chapter eight with the seventh seal that launched the beginning of all of the trumpets, which led us all the way through chapters 8 and 9. But now we're seeing another parenthesis. So we're seeing this structure in Scripture that is it's really just the fingerprints of God. So 10 through 14, we're going to be seeing this parenthesis before we get to, uh, before we get to uh, that seventh trumpet sounding and blasting, okay? And then we'll move on to seven bowls and whatnot from there. But as we move through chapter 10 and chapter 11 tonight, uh, we're going to see some significant things in each chapter. And I want to give you an overview just so you can know what to look out for. Uh, The significant points that we want to look for in chapters 10 and 11 are this. First, chapter 10, if we can see that, chapter 10, the little book. We're going to see this little book 
I've already mentioned it briefly. We're going to see something called Seven Thunders. And then in chapter 11, we're going to see a referencing of the temple, that third temple that will be here on earth, and also the temple that is in heaven. And we'll spend a little bit of time on that tonight. Not too much, but a little bit. And then, of course, these two witnesses of the seven-year tribulation period that we've heard a lot about. We're going to get uh, a little deeper into that this evening. Okay, so with that, are we ready, guys? Are we ready to begin? You got your Bibles ready? You got your cup of coffee ready? I know I do. So let's begin with prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you give us understanding. And you give us knowledge that passes beyond understanding, Lord Jesus. So we ask that you'd be with everybody within the sound of my voice tonight as we come to you in this study, that we would be led by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would give us knowledge and depth of insight into the word that we are studying, that we would be blessed and our spirits enriched for having done this study in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Somebody said, amen. Amen. All right. So right off the bat, let's go. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with the cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. Interesting. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. This is some interesting, uh, this is some in interesting uh, verbiage here, honestly. So think of this. We've got uh, clothed in a cloud, coming from heaven, clothed in a cloud, rainbow on his head, face like the sun, feet like pillars of fire. Now, some people conjecture that this is Jesus, okay? Uh, why would they do that? Well, let me show you this. Can I see this graphic here? Clouds. We see uh, God coming on the clouds in Exodus 16, 24, 34, Psalm 104. We see uh, uh, Jesus in the clouds uh, with Matthew 17, Luke 21, Acts 1, Revelation 1, right? The rainbow, Psalm 89, Psalm 8, Revelation 4, the sun in correlation to Jesus in Revelation 1, again, Matthew chapter 17, uh, regarding his uh, feet uh, being like pillars of fire, feet and fire, uh, Revelation 1 was already referenced. As we continue to read through the scripture, we're going to come to verse 3, and it's going to mention him being uh, as a lion, okay? So as when a lion roars, we'll see that in a moment. Point is, is that Jesus often appears as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And I gave you several references there, so you can screenshot it if you wanted to. You can always rewind it. These, <laughs> this leads many people to think that this is possibly Jesus, that this angel coming from heaven is possibly Jesus because of all of this. And that's compelling, and if that's you, that's fine. I don't think it makes much of a difference. I don't necessarily think that this is Jesus, though. Like I, I do think that this is an angel. It says an angel. I think it's an angel. What kind of angel could this be describing? Michael is the chief angel, but this is not Michael, or it would say Michael. So this is some other angel that is maybe like a number two. Michael's the number one, the chief angel, right? So this is a guy who's got to be high up there, right? Because Jesus is in the throne room at this point. Jesus is in the throne room. Don't forget this, okay? So in my opinion, it's probably another powerful angel. Anyway, let's keep reading. He had, he had a little book in his hand, verse two. 
and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, this is interesting because throughout the scripture, we see the sea as a reference to people, groups of people, and in particular, in many cases, Gentile people, okay? And the land, we see that uh, as an idiom uh, or metaphor for Israel as well. And as we move forward into Revelation chapter 13, we'll see a beast come out of the sea and a beast come out of uh, the land, right? So is this foreshadowing? I don't know. In any case, he set his foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So this is still an angel though. So remember, type and shadow, it's not, it's not the beast here, but he is, you know, there's some similarities here. Verse three, and he cried. He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. That's what I was referring to a minute ago. But he cried, and he cried as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered, uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. This is so interesting to me. First of all, the seven thunders. What is this? What is this seven thunders? Okay. Uh, when they uttered, when the, th when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, and all of a sudden, a, a voice from heaven, is that God, right? I don't, I, I don't know who it is. A voice, he hears a voice say, do not write them, okay? A voice from heaven saying, seal up these things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. What's so interesting is that apparently the Holy Spirit wants us to know that there was something said that has not been revealed yet. So when we're not going to know what it is until it happens, until the tribulation period. So <laughs> it's really cool because generally speaking, when this sort of thing happens in the Word of God, it then explains what it was, right? Or we see in the prophecies of Daniel that in the end times, you know, knowledge will increase. Well, we're seeing an explosion of knowledge like has never seen before in the history of man right now. We're also seeing not only with iPhones and computers, but as far as knowledge in regards to the Word of God and people understanding it and the Holy Spirit giving divine insight into the Scriptures, right? So, uh, we're seeing that, okay? That's not a mystery. We know what's happening now. We know that that prophecy is being fulfilled. This is something something specific that that isn't that is that is honestly something that he wanted us to know. There's more yet to come that we're going to hear, but I don't I don't know to what purpose. I don't know. It's just kind of a conundrum, isn't it? Anyway, let's keep reading. Verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven, verse 6, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that's pretty complete, huh? That there should be delay no longer. Wow. Okay, so first things first. First things first. Let's go to this graphic right now. Let's go to this. First things first. What do we pull out of this? We know that God 
has made promises to man, okay? And he has made promises, many that are still yet unfulfilled to the church in the way of rapture, promises that are still uh, unfulfilled to Israel, and many of them that we're reading right now. So we know that God is under oath to Abraham, right? We know that he declared his son to be the high priest in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20 and 22. Is Jesus the high priest right now? Well, I mean, he's really, really going to be in the millennial reign. We know that God has made a promise to David that the Messiah would come from his family and that he would sit on the throne of David. He's not on the throne of David yet. He's still on his father's throne in heaven, right? That's still yet to come. That comes, uh, that, you can reference that in Acts chapter 2. So we know that God has made all of these promises and he's been waiting, he's been waiting, he's been waiting for the time of the Gentiles to be fulfilled. He's been waiting for the last moment when anybody that possibly could be saved would be saved. And here it all comes down to this, guys. This is the bottom line. And the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. The time for repentance is up now officially. That should put shivers down your spine for anybody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and doesn't have their, uh, uh, their eternity secured in faith and trust in Jesus Christ, okay? Because the time is coming, a day is coming where, where the time for repentance will be over, church. And that's what we're reading right here. Verse seven, let's continue. But verse seven, but in the days of the sounding, of the seventh angel, seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. I mean, this is—he's talking about bringing it all of this to a close, guys. That's what this whole seven-year tribulation period is all about. You've got to understand that. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, where God is finally, once and for all, dealing with Israel. The church is gone at this point. The Holy Spirit, the restrainer, has been lifted and raptured from the earth, in my belief, in my understanding. This is, he's bringing everything to an end. Everything that started in Eden is coming to a close right here, and we're reading it. We're, we are watching it as if watching a movie here through reading the scriptures here. The mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants and the prophets. The mystery of God. There are a few mysteries of God, aren't they? As we read through the scriptures. This is actually, we uh, did a study on um, uh, this summer uh, through uh, Paul's pastoral epistles and uh, we studied Titus and First Timothy and Second Timothy, and we came across some of these mysteries. Can I pull that list back up? The twelve mysteries of God, and this is just twelve. There's far, there's more than that, and you could make this list in a different way to where you could have more than twelve on your list. I'm sure, but here's here's just a few. What kind of mysteries of God will be finished? Well, the mystery of the kingdom of God that'll be done. The mystery of the kingdom of heaven will be done. The mystery of the manifestation in flesh, the mystery of salvation by faith, the mystery of the ultimate unity, mm. the mystery of the Gentiles in the same body as the Jew, the mystery of the bride of Christ, the mystery of the rapture of the church, the harpazo, the mystery of iniquity in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 
the mystery of the seven churches. All these mysteries, we'll know. All, it'll, it'll all be gone. The time for mystery will be over. We'll be all-knowing. We'll see all, and all will be clear. On this day, every knee will bow, and every knee will bow, and every head will, will bow. Uh, every tongue confess. The mystery of Israel's blindness. The mystery Babylon. Although, I'm, unfortunately, I hate to say it, the mystery Babylon, it seems to be that that picture becomes more clear every day. Um, anyway, let's keep reading. Verse 8. The mysteries are finished, and then verse 8. Then the, then the voice which I heard, the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to them, that said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. Interesting. Now, again, this is the sort of thing that if you're just reading it off the surface without any context of the full counsel of the word, it would be confusing. But as we read, it'll make, it'll make more sense. Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Interesting. Verse 10. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, just like he said, right? But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Okay, so. <laughs> Eat it, he says. The book is unsealed, okay? Now, you've got to understand that the scroll in those days is the same thing as a book to us now. You know, they would take a piece of parchment, and it was a pretty big piece of parchment, and ultimately what they'd happen, have happened is when they were done writing on the parchment, they would glue, fasten somehow another page to that page, and eventually the scroll would be super long. I think the book of Revelations is a scroll that's 15 feet long, actually, if you're wondering. Pretty cool. Uh, obviously, as time progressed, we got books and whatnot. As time moved along, this book that he's talking about, is it the, the scroll that was in the hand? Likely, I, I think so. Anyway, he breaks the seals, this deed, this deed to the earth, whatever it is. Take it and eat it, he says. Why do you eat it? Andrew, do you know why you would eat it? What? Nutritional value? Probably fiber. Fiber, maybe? Okay. <laughs> I think the... the the metaphor here, when we eat it, what do we do? We digest something, right? We digest something. Again, like I said, this is something that doesn't make sense if you just read it alone, but if you understand the full counsel of the Word of God, it makes a bit more sense. Can I see this next graphic? The Word of God is often referred to as food throughout the Scripture. Uh, take a look. God's Word often compared to food. Bread, right? Bread of life in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, referred to as milk by Peter, as meat by Paul in 1 Corinthians, and referred to as honey even by the psalmist. Essentially, why is this visual always given to us that the word of God is food? Because assimilation is essential. I want you to understand this, guys. I want you to really lay hold of this visual here, guys, because we talk about this a lot at Life Story Church, that we don't want to just... 
read our Bible. We want to study our Bible, right? Okay? We don't want to just know what we believe. We want to know why we believe it. Know what you believe and why you believe it. That way you can be bold in defending your positions and your opinions. If you don't know why you believe it, you just believe it because you were raised to believe it, then you'll have no, you'll have no true understanding or ability to defend it and debate, especially with an unbeliever that's going to call you to the carpet and challenge you on issues of the day, right? And if, when, when society and the world is, is, is espousing liberal ideals and values, uh, and they think that you are just a backwards conservative uh, Christian that is you know, following a book that is outdated, and you know what I'm talking about, right? They come to you and they say, what about this, this, and this? You've got to be able to explain your point as far as why you believe what you believe, right? So the Word of God is so good to, in multiple places, explain to us, describe the Word of God as a food. Why? Because we're not just to read it and like, oh, I got to put my 10 minutes in for today so I don't have to feel bad about myself. Of course, I just read it on the surface and I don't really know what half of it meant. And if I, if I passed a verse that I didn't understand, I just kept reading, right? Been there, done that, okay? We are supposed to consume the Word of God. That's what, that's what is being uh, espoused here, okay? Assimilating the Word of God into your life, into you. Consume the Word of God. It's just beyond reading your Bible, but consume this. It becomes a part of you. Do you get that, guys? Come on now. One analogy uh, uh, for us could be this, right? It could be uh, the Word of God is sweet and wonderful, but as John ate it, it became bitter to him. Why? Because truth can be hard to digest. It can be hard to digest. It can be hard to hear the truth sometimes, can it? It can be. It can, uh, it can be hard to understand the truth sometimes as well. So it's hard to hear it, hard to understand it. Why? Because it is always hard to grow. It is always hard to grow. Sometimes we read something in the Word and we struggle with it because we don't understand it yet, right? Sometimes we read something and, and we struggle with it because we know it's challenging us. But in those times that we read something and we struggle with it because we don't understand it yet, okay, that's a moment where, where you, know, you have to answer in those moments this, do you trust the Word of God? Do you trust it enough to dig a little bit deeper, okay? Or are you afraid of what you're going to find? Don't be afraid of what you're going to find. Trust the Word of God enough to dig a little deeper and don't be afraid that your faith is going to go into a tailspin, I promise you. The Bible does nothing but prove itself over and over and over again. You know, this verse, to me, talking of the, the consuming of the, the Word and, and whatnot, it, it, it harkens to me of uh, John chapter 6, verse 53 through 66. I don't have time to pull this whole scripture apart, but let me read it to you real quick. Then Jesus said to them, John chapter 6, verse 53 through 66, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That sounds like eating a book a little bit, right? Doesn't it? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 55. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This could be kind of hard for somebody just to read on the surface and understand, don't you think? Yeah, let's keep going. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Can you, can you imagine what these people's minds are? And I'm sure their minds were blown. Verse 60, let's keep going. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? I can imagine. I, I remember the first time I read this, I was like, what is he talking about here? I remember the first time I read in Revelation, eat the book. What is he talking about here? Uh, verse 61 when Jesus knew in himself that the disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Verse 63. Is it the Spirit who gives life, the flesh who profits nothing? The words that I speak to you are, are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Verse 65. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. Verse 67. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? In other words, are you going to go away too? Right? Though bitter to digest or understand sometimes, the truth of the Lord, church, will always reveal itself to you if you'll just dig in. Digging into this scripture, man, I'll tell you what. One thing about Jesus, it's, you know, as a church planter, you know, there's this mindset that at least when we first got started out, you just always wanted more and more, bigger crowds, bigger crowds, right? Just as much, we want to grow, grow, grow. Why? Because the, the number of people you have in your church, you think, you think initially is a sign of the church health. It's not, it's not, okay? A church health, the sign of a church health, church's health is its maturity and its unity, okay? But uh, <laughs> Jesus was always, always comforting to the church planter because Jesus always had the opposite model. He just have, would have crowds come to him out of nowhere. He's not even trying to get crowds. He'd get crowds. But he was always really great at thinning it out. Like He's just, hey, just, he'd say something like this, and anybody who wasn't really in, they just would go home confused because you know why? They weren't willing to dig in. They weren't willing to do the work. They weren't truly willing to consume and digest the word of God. Do you see that? Mm. Even though it's hard, growing is hard, it's hard to digest, it's hard to understand, the truth of the Lord will reveal itself to you if you, if you digest it, if you consume it, if you, what's the word we used before? 
uh, if we assimilate, right? Verse 11, Revelation uh, 10, 11. And he said to me, he said to me, you must prophesy again. And this is the end of that uh, chapter 10. He said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And that's chapter 10 for you guys. So he'll prophesy again. What does that mean? I, I don't know. <laughs> does that mean that John is going to come again? We'll see him again. Some people uh, think that maybe John is one of the two witnesses that we're about to talk about in the revelation period, revelation period, the tribulation period, uh, because of this verse. I don't think so, and I'll show you why. But anyway, there it is. So let's see that uh, those significant points that we're uh, going to be we were covering tonight. Chapter ten in the books, the little book, the seven thunders. Now we're going to have a little fun with chapter eleven. We're going to talk about the temple and uh, the two witnesses. So what are we waiting for? You guys ready? You ready, Eva? Eva's ready. Carolyn, you ready? Carolyn's ready. All right, uh, let's go into it. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, I still think we need the team cam, so we can go to the team cam for sure. All right, Revelation chapter 11, uh, let's read verse 1 right out of the gate. Then I was given, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. Okay, we're not going to get much further than that yet, okay? Because this is some interesting stuff, okay? There's a lot of different uh, conjecture on the third temple of Israel. We know that in 1948 that Israel was reclaimed. The third prophesied third kingdom of Israel was reborn. And that started a prophetic time clock as far as the end times is concerned, right? Uh, a countdown to uh, this seven-year tribulation period, okay? Then in 1967, we saw the Six-Day War in Israel. And miraculously, Israel regained, regained Jerusalem. Now, they still... Uh, let Jordan rule the Temple Mount, and there's a lot of conflict because of that, okay? Uh, it would be hard to imagine the, uh, the Islam and the Arab nations allowing Israel to rebuild their temple up on the Temple Mount. However, that's really why a lot of people think that with the peace deals that uh, Trump achieved while he was in office truly, possibly, potentially paved the way for the rebuilding of a third temple on the Temple Mount in Israel. I mean, you look at the, uh, the Ezekiel 38-39 war, and I always wondered where all of the Arab nations, you know, this confederation that comes against Israel in the end times, uh, around, at, around the uh, tribulation period time, you had Russia, Syria, Turkey, Libya, Ethiopia, all these other nations, but there weren't Arab nations, really. And I always wondered where they were. Well, now Israel's got peace deals with all of them. So that could be very prophetically significant, okay? Uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, you know, Egypt, all of these deals that have been done uh, under President Trump. So 
in any case, could that be pushing us towards the reality of a third temple being, I'm telling, I'm just telling you guys, whoever, whoever negotiates that deal to put a third temple on the Temple Mount in Israel, the Jewish people will accept that person as their Messiah. Remember, they're not waiting for Jesus to come back. On Sunday at 10 in the morning, our time, 6 p.m. Israel time, they, there was a global initiative that I don't know for how long they had been promoting it, but it happened at, at 10 a.m. Sunday, our time, 10 a.m., where Jews all over the world stopped what they were doing and prayed for the Messiah to come. You know, little did they know, unfortunately, the Messiah had come. It's Jesus Christ, right? Yeshua HaMashiach had come. So, but the Messiah that they're praying will come will be the Messiah that gives them their temple, right? So that we know from studying Revelation, and we're going to really get into it here in chapter 13 in a week or two. Uh, but I'm telling you guys, could the stage be set here for somebody to come, Antichrist figure to come and set that up? It could be. But there's also other conjectures that, that suggest it might not be so hard of a deal. It might not be such of a tough of a deal to get a temple in Jerusalem for the Jewish people because it might not be where we traditionally now think that it should be. Let me just show you a picture and talk about this picture for just a moment, okay? We won't spend a lot of time here, but look, can I see this next picture? There are a few different theories. You're looking at an aerial shot of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. To your left, the city of David, that is to the south. So if you can imagine your compass is turned clockwise, the south is now to the left, the north is to the right. Uh, just look at this. There's the Dome of the Rock that we recognize as the Jerusalem skyline, right? Some people, traditional view is that that's where the temple was and that's why the Dome of the Rock went there. Well, some other good scholars have done work and thought and come up with different theories saying, well, maybe it should be to the north because the Dorm of the Spirit of Tablets up there, it could be there, and that would line up perfectly with the Golden Gate. However, if you line it up with the fountain, they've got, all, they've got many different reasons for uh, their conjectures and their theories, and they're all good. So I'm showing this primarily to you tonight to maybe light a fuse in you guys, because if you've never done a study on the temple and where it could be, I encourage you to do so because it's very uh, enriching. It's an enriching study and you'll be glad that you looked into it because there's a lot of cool stuff there. Yes, it's primarily academic, but it's very, very cool. Um, if you see one more time, let me show you that one more time. I want The city of David, do you see that? Now, you, see, you know, some of these theories you know, involve a need for the Dome of the Rock to be moved. And it's hard to imagine a peace deal between Arabs and Muslims and Jews could come and happen if that means you're going to have to tear down the Dome of the Rock, right? To me, the most compelling case is the city of David to the south. Um, you can come back to me now. This is a book that if uh, you haven't heard about it, I encourage you check it out. I encourage you go on Amazon, buy the book, it's so rich, guys. Bob Cornuke uh, is his name. Uh, the book is The Temple. It's just Temple by Bob Cornuke. He suggests that it should be in the city of David. When you study the scriptures, there's 
adequate, adequate references in the Word of God that the temple was in the city of David, just above the city of David. Um, so, can I imagine for a second now that all of this stuff happening in the world right now with the Great Reset, one world government, one world currency being pushed, 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 all of this stuff that looks like we're heading straight into Revelation uh, and the uh, Tribulation period, all we're missing is a temple for the, for the Jewish people, right? Well, what if they discover any day or have discovered already that the temple was and should be in the city of David, they could start building it tomorrow. You know, so uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff uh, to think about. So uh, can I see the next picture, Eva? I think there's one more picture in there as well to give you another visual. So this is what it would be like. There's the Temple Mount. What's another interesting fact about this is that you see on the northern, the, up, the top of the hill there, that is the Dome of the Rock in the center there. Well, it's trying to show you that that would have been the Fort Antonio. You've got to remember the Fort Antonio, when you look at the uh, uh, maps of the Temple Mount right now, there was a Roman fort there, and they, they think it's just this little structure to the uh, northwest uh, of the Temple Mount. However, the Fort Antonio was supposed to have held legions and legions of troops. And if you look at this, if you assume that the Temple Mount was a Roman fort and you look at other Roman forts that held legions in all over Europe, they look just like the Temple Mount. So anyway, um, interesting there. So that, there was also a rock. You can come back to me. Anyway, there's also a rock in the middle of, uh, Josephus tells us there was a rock in the middle of the Fort of Antonia where Jesus would have stood when he was speaking to Pilate, could that rock that Jesus stood on be where the Catholic Church built a church to commemorate that, but then once it was taken over by the Moors and the Muslims, then they built the Dome of the Rock there, thinking that that was the sacred holy place where the church was. The church was just commemorating the rock where Jesus stood while he was being uh, spoken to by Pilate, yet the true temple location remains in the lower city of David. I don't some really cool stuff guys so um we could do a series on that so i'm just trying to light your light your fuse on that go get it go find that stuff because it's out there and it's a really fascinating subject anyway back to verse 2 chapter 11 verse 2 but leave the the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it remember he's measuring the temple for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. All right, now we're starting to get into some timetables here. And I will give, verse 3, power to my two witnesses. Now, in Greek, that phrase means these two witnesses of mine, okay? Which suggests you already know about these two guys, these two witnesses of mine. And they will prophesy, they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I mean, this, these are some serious dudes. Yeah, they would wear sackcloth. This is all about uh, repentance, the ministry of repentance. That's what the sackcloth is. is in the Old Testament, when you were truly repentant and praying to God, you'd, you'd cover yourself in uh, basically like a potato sack. I mean, just to be prostrate before God. But we see some timetables here, don't we? We're starting to see some timetables, and they're familiar if you've studied Daniel. Now, this is why I always say you're not going to understand Revelation if you don't 
if you haven't read Daniel. Daniel and Revelation go hand in hand. So you're, we're looking at Daniel chapter uh, 7, 9, all the way through 12. We see these timetables matching up with the prophecy that John is giving us here in Revelation, okay? So can we see this next graphic? So these two witnesses show up on the scene, and they're here. He just gave us 42 uh, months or 1,260 days. We've got some math majors out there. I know it, right? Three and a half years. The temple court is measured. The outer court is given to the Gentiles. For how long? 42 months. We're keeping in mind that a Hebrew year is 360 days, okay? Your math's going to be off if you're trying to do this with 365 days, okay? Two witnesses are empowered. How long? Again, 1,260 days, okay? What's going to happen, though, in the middle? We know from Daniel, in the middle of the 70th week, a week is how long? Seven days, so seven years. What's half of seven? Oh, man, we're getting it done now. Three and a half, right? Three and a half. So in the middle of that week of that tribulation period, also Daniel chapter 7 and 12, time times the dividing time tells us three and a half years is a big important point for this tribulation period. Of, the, of what it says in Daniel chapter 7, the time times and the dividing of time, that can be confusing if you don't understand that in the Greek, when it when it says times, that's dual lingually, so it means two. Time means one, and then times means two, so together that would be three, okay? The dividing of time, so three and a half again. So here we have this scripture, church. Here we have this scripture lining up with scriptures of Daniel's. There will be a dividing of the seven-year tribulation. These two witnesses, they begin to witness along with the 144,000 that we talked about in Revelation chapter 7. Those Jews that, that they're here for the first half of the tribulation period, that first three and a half years, the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, right, uh, that have been reserved. And these two witnesses, verse 4, verse 4, what about these two? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of earth. That's interesting. This is an interesting visual here because what does that mean, right? Well, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10 through 14, there's two guys that he talks about it. Now, I'm not going to go to Zechariah tonight, but write that down if you're taking notes. Zechariah chapter 4, you can read verse 10 through 14. Let me paraphrase it for you, okay? Zerubbabel is the governor. He's the governor, and Joshua is the priest, okay? And these two guys reestablish the temple after the captivity, okay? The imagery in this scripture portrays them as ever feeding the golden menorah with oil. They are trees that go into the piping of the menorah to keep it ever burning, ever burning, okay? So they have, in, in essence, the oil of the lampstands is always associated with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, what, what John is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying here, rather, is that they, these two will have a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what's idiomatic here happening. So idiomatically, what's happening is these two, 
These two witnesses have a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Ooh, I want that. Amen? Ooh, amen. You can feel it right now. But who are these two guys prophetically? Who are these two guys prophetically? Well, let's just keep reading, and uh, I think it's going to make itself apparent. Verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Verse 6. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. Wow, that's some serious power. Who are these guys, huh? An interesting observation, an interesting observation uh, comes to us from uh, John chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. When the Pharisees go out to investigate what is happening uh, at the Jordan with John the Baptist, John the Baptist has started his ministry of repentance, and by the droves, people are wandering out from Jerusalem out into the wilderness to the Jordan. The questions that they ask him when they arrive to John, uh, their questioning tells us who they're expecting, okay? So let me jump to uh, John chapter 1, verse 20 through 21 real quick. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Why would he? they think he's the Christ? Well, because Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 speaks of the Christ coming in that way, right? Verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Why would they think he's Elijah? Because Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 talks about the prophet Elijah coming before the returning of the Messiah, right? So, uh, right there, is he the Christ? No. Is he Elijah? He said, I am not. And then this one. Let's go back to the scripture. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. What prophet is he talking about? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 through 19, it's prophesied that a prophet of Moses will come as well. So they're expecting the Messiah. Well, we know they're expecting the Messiah, right? But they're also expecting Elijah. As a matter of fact, they still set a place for Elijah during the Passover Seder every year. Every spring, the Jews celebrate the Passover Seder. They leave an empty table setting and cup and glass of wine for Elijah, and they'll leave the door cracked so it's open and he can just come right in whenever he wants to. Okay, so they're expecting Elijah. Obviously, we know they're expecting the Messiah, but they're also expecting here. And we can see that because they're asking, well, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. You Moses? No. Okay. So we know who they're expecting. Can I go back to this next graphic? So we see these two witnesses empowered. They were empowered for... No, you were on the right one. Empowered for 1260 days. They called down fire from heaven. Who else did that in the Old Testament? You know this one. Elijah. They shut heaven so there's no rain which we know, which we know from the New Testament, not the Old, that Elijah prayed for the heavens to be shut up. And we know that that drought in Israel at that time, how long was the drought in Israel in the time of Elijah? It was a three and a half year drought. Are we seeing type and shadow at all here, guys? I think we might be. So is that Elijah? 
Okay? Who turned water into blood? Moses did. What else did these two witnesses do? They have the power to what? Smite the earth with plagues. Who dealt with, who's smiting the earth with plagues? Moses, right? So we know that they were expecting Moses and Elijah when at the time of Jesus, when John the Baptist, and the, the description of the powers that God has given them here sounds a lot like, well, Moses and uh, Elijah. And one could argue that both both ministries were unfinished. I mean, Elijah didn't die a natural death. He was caught up in a whirlwind, wasn't he? He didn't suffer a natural death. And Moses, Moses, he didn't get to go into the promised land. He didn't get to, he, why? Remember, he spoke incorrectly for God when God told him to speak to the rock. And so waters would come from the rock at Meribah. But Moses was so mad at the uh, Israelites that he struck the rock in his anger. And thus he did not communicate the word of God accurately. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, that should be a wake-up call for these thus saith the Lord people. I mean, uh, one should be hesitant to say the thus saith the Lord because um, you don't want to speak for God if you aren't 100% certain that that's what God is saying in that moment. There's a great abuse of that in the church today, especially in the more um, charismatic movements where people will say, thus saith the Lord, and prophesy that the Lord is saying this and the Lord is saying that. Oh, nothing makes the Lord more angry, church, than when you say he's saying something and he's not. So if that's you and you're listening to this, please... Put a leash on your tongue, okay? Don't get overly worked up emotionally. You need to know that you know that you know that you're speaking for God if you're going to speak for God. All right, so... Um, some say Enoch. Some say, well, Enoch never suffered a natural death either. So some people think that it's Elijah because he never suffered a natural death, and Enoch never suffered a natural death, and it's pointed once the man to die, for once for man to die, right? So some people make a case for Enoch, um, but I think, you know, uh, I think that it's more likely that Enoch is a type and shadow of the rapture for us. I think that the case that we just saw as far as these two guys, their powers and whatnot, Enoch was born, Enoch was born on the Feast of Pentecost. He was also raptured on the Feast of Pentecost. So I think it's more likely that he is a type and shadow. But uh, I'll also take into account uh, that there were two witnesses at these events as well. Can we see that next graphic now? These two witnesses. There were two witnesses at the resurrection. We can see that in uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 4 and 7. When he rose from the dead, there were two men wearing shining, shining clothing, right? At the ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 9 and 11, everybody's staring up at the sky, and all of a sudden what happens? Two men appear among them and say, what are you looking at, right? <laughs> Check these out, guys. Don't take my word for any of this. And then at the transfiguration, there were two guys when Jesus went up on the mountain, right? And he was transfigured in Matthew chapter 17, verse 3. Let's just read that one verse real quick. Let's check it out. Who were these two guys? And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him having a staff meeting of what was to come, I'm sure. So, 
feels like Moses and Elijah to me. Let's keep reading Revelation 11, though. When they finish their testimony, verse 7, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. The Antichrist will kill them, church. And as we studied last week, who is this? He came out of the pit, Gog, be a name that he wears at that time. Anyway, verse 8, let's keep reading. They are, they do suffer that death. They are killed. And verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And, and uh, where also our Lord was crucified. So he makes the point to clarify, spiritually it's Sodom and Egypt, but it's Jerusalem, because that's the city our Lord was crucified in. But throughout the scripture, even if he hadn't said that, we know from scripture, uh, many times in the scripture, Jerusalem is referred to as Sodom due to its immorality, and it's referred to as Egypt due to its idolatry. And I could have put a bunch of different scripture references there for you, but for time's sake, we'll move on. So let's go to this next graphic. So what do we see here? The dead bodies are in the street. Dead bodies are in the street. The Antichrist has killed them. Okay. And what are we going to see? What are we going to see? We've seen the transfiguration, right? The two witnesses. But then the beast from the Abuso kills them. What's, what happens? The earth dwellers, all those who dwell on the earth, celebrate. And then what's going to happen? After three and a half days, no coincidence on that number, after three and a half days, they're going to be resurrected. So let's read verse 9. Verse 9. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell upon the earth, and there's that phrase again, I always say after Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, we'd never see a loving reference for people who are on the earth uh, unless they're sent, uh, you know, or unless they are a tribulation saint who's been uh, saved through tribulation. These are earth dwellers at this point. They're not children of God, right? And those who dwell upon the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell upon the earth. The only rejoicing on earth in Revelation comes to us and is seen worldwide on CNN, right? And on all the fake news networks, it'll be shown they're dead in the streets and they don't even bury them. They leave them there so they can... Pictures of these two who had such miraculous powers and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, along with these 144,000 at the time, these two will be so hated by the world. A world that just wants what it wants and rejects anyone that tries to tell them that they can't have that what they want and they can't have it when they want and they can't gratify themselves in any lewd or debauched way. Ooh, so it's seen worldwide and there they are. But then, but then, let's keep moving, we gotta move. We're out of time. But then, verse 11. Now after the three and a half days... The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. All right, so when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended, right? When we're raptured, we are just gone in the twinkling of an eye. This is going to be more like 
when Jesus rose from the dead versus us. We're just going to be gone and they're going to have some story made up, I'm sure, to explain what happened to us, right? These guys are going to, after being dead in the street for three and a half days, that, that ain't pretty, first of all, all right? But they're going to literally get up, if you can imagine. They're, they stand up to their feet. What a scene. Let's go back to the text. And great fear fell on those who saw them. I can imagine. Verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. It's not the same meditata word uh, as we saw in Revelation chapter 4, but again, it does mean ascend, the Greek word there. Saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. So, different word, because a different thing is happening. This is more like what happened to Christ at the Ascension in Acts. In Acts, So, when they ascended into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them, and their enemies saw them. Verse 13, In the same hour, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Now, we, I don't really have anything to tie to to tie this 7,000 to you. And we know that there was a remnant of 7,000 uh, in the Old Testament that Jesus mentioned to Elijah. But, you know, is there a correlation there? I don't know. Maybe somebody, maybe one of you guys listening can uh, run that down for me. Uh, and the rest were afraid. The rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Verse 14 and the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe, the third woe is coming quickly. So can I go back to that uh, heptatic structure, that next graphic? Uh, so here's where we are, guys. Here's where we are. <laughs> that, that next woe is coming. We know those three woes were the last three trumpets, and he, that's what he's talking about right now. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Okay, now let's go back to verse 15, because here it comes. It's about to drop, all right? That third woe is about to, the hammer is about to fall. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, interesting here, this word kingdoms is the word basilia in Greek, okay? And it doesn't mean kingdoms like multiple kingdoms of the planet Earth, okay? It is singular. It means the kingdom of Earth. In other words, he is speaking specifically of Satan. Because whose kingdom is this right now that we are living through? This is not our home, right? We're ambassadors for Christ here. Whose kingdom are we visiting? This is Satan is running this show, if you haven't noticed lately, guys. So the kingdom of Satan, whew, man. And he's declaring that the kingdom of Satan has been the, become the kingdom of our Lord. Somebody say amen. And Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. He's in control now, church. But he's, he's in control right now in this world, but he's not reigning like he will one day. This, another translation says, thou hast begun to reign. 
Oh, this is this is the moment. He's taking the reins into this plane, church. Come on now. And what happens next? Verse 18, the nations were angry. Why are they angry? Because they want their way. They want it without restraint. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. How cool is that? Uh, it's important to understand uh, that the Ark of the Covenant here, the one we don't—it's missing, right? We don't know where it is necessarily. Um, you know, after the temple fell in 70 A.D. and everything else, uh, people don't know where it is. Would they do with it? You know, is it in the basement of the Vatican, or was it melted down? What people don't know where it is, right? But. It doesn't matter anyway, because the ark was only ever... You can read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, that the ark of the covenant here was only ever a replica of the ark that is in heaven. The temple here, only ever a replica of the temple that is in heaven. And that when that new Jerusalem comes down, we'll see it all, and that's coming later on in Revelation. But... but it's an interesting point on this issue of the ark as the as the temple institute in Jerusalem is getting ready for this prophesied third kingdom that we talk about and talked about earlier they're they're getting everything ready as soon as they've got that's what I'm talking about guys if they discover or decide that it was in the city of David they've got all of the uh uh instruments needed to begin the sacrifices again. They've already dedicated the altar in 2019, December 2019. They've already, or in any case, I could be off on the date. They've already dedicated the altar. They already have the menorah on display. They already have all of these things ready to go. As a matter of fact, the Temple Institute says if they got a green light and the Sanhedrin is reinstituted, they have a, a, a high priest for the first time uh, that has been appointed for the first time since 70 AD. The high priest, when asked, how, if you had a green light for the Temple Mount and the rebuilding of the temple or wherever it's going to be, how long would it take? And he said, well, two weeks. That's it. Because they just set up another tent of meeting. Remember, the tent of meeting was still the Temple of God as they moved across the desert. But it was Solomon who built a more permanent one. But it was still the temple that housed the presence of God is what mattered. So... They could have a tent set up and everything going in two weeks as they construct, rapidly construct the third temple. So as they have all of those instruments ready to go, the only thing that they need is the, uh, is the Ark of the Covenant, which makes this an interesting point. I saw this in the news a couple days ago. And in case you didn't, let me show it to you because I find it fascinating. Can I see this headline? This is the New York Post. This is not some conspiracy theory website. There's civil war in, in Ethiopia, and there were at least 800 Ethiopian Christians killed after defending the Ark of the Covenant. They believe that they house within this temple uh, in Ethiopia the Ark of the Covenant. They believe this group of Christians believe they're descendants of the Jews and that they have the real Ark in there. Boy, wouldn't you like to go in and look? Anyway, 
the militias were coming through, not even really interested so much in the Ark, but just trying to sack the town and uh, rob the town. And about over, over 800 people came to the defense of that temple to protect the Ark. What they say is the Ark, I mean, they laid their life. they're so sure the Ark of the Covenant is in there that they gave their lives to protect it with sticks and stones. And they did so. So, pretty incredible. What if the Ark of the Covenant is there? To me, as far as finding evidence that it truly is there, there's no greater evidence that over 800 people were so sure that it's in there, the locals, so sure that it's in there that they gave their lives to protect it. So perhaps it's there and that's ready to go too, guys. I'm telling you, we're getting so close to Jesus coming back. We're getting so close to Jesus coming back. All of this stuff is right here. We're on the precipice. Is your heart ready? Is your heart ready? Come on now. Many are the plans of man. Don't get so caught up in your plans of what you want to do tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, your career plan, your life plan, your family plan, whatever it is. Don't get so caught up in the the comings and goings of this world that you lose your first love and lose sight of what is most important. If Jesus came back tonight, would you be ready? Would you be happy about it? Mm, blessed, blessed is he who waits on the appearing of the Lord. Are you waiting for him? Are you looking for him? Is your heart, is your heart, has it consumed the word of God? Has it consumed it? Is it holding on to it so tightly? Are you waiting for the Lord to come with bated breath? I pray you are. I pray you're encouraged to do so. I pray you're encouraged to let go the things of this world that will burn like chaff in the fire one day. Church, nothing you can take with you. There's nothing here that you can take with you. This is not our home. You're an ambassador here. You're an ambassador here to represent him and share this good news with any that you can and that you come across. So mm, with every eye closed and every head bowed, let's close tonight. Mm. Oh, church, there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and a great hail. Oh, the power of God, the power of God. We don't even comprehend it. If you're here tonight and you're starting to comprehend it a little bit more and you know it's time to surrender some things in your life or you just want to continue to pray for greater understanding, insight, uh, revelation, whatever it is you're giving to the Lord, let's just give it to him right now. Jesus, thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the how it's... It's faithful and true, Lord, because you are faithful and true. We thank you, Lord, that you never fail to move on our hearts, God. You never fail to uh, overwhelm us and overcome us with your love and your goodness, Lord. Oh, we thank you for it, Jesus. We thank you for your presence, God. We thank you, Father, that, that as much as we hope to try and figure out and, and, and about your word and what's to come, nothing's more important to figure out than how much you love us, Lord, and we know that. Now you have gone to such great lengths to show us that. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you're, you, you, you guide us, Holy Spirit. You keep us true. Lord, you, you give us correction. 
Holy Spirit, you correct us when we get off course. Oh, Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, we need you more every day. We pray you come quickly, Lord Jesus. Continue to give us depth of insight and understanding to your word. Encourage us, Father. Encourage those uh, who are out there right now that maybe are, are disappointed or downtrodden and are depressed in their spirit, Lord, because they feel they've failed you and they failed, Lord Jesus. Lift up their heads, Lord. Let a spirit of joy fill their hearts right now because let, let this study show them the lengths that you have gone to to demonstrate the love that you have for them, the lengths that you have gone to, to to show them what you're going to do before you do it so that your love can be proved to them, Lord. Let them be inspired by that, Lord, to move on in strength and encouragement of the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. Now, if anybody's watching this at home right now and you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, You've never surrendered your life or you put your faith and trust in him that he's got your eternity and he's got it in the palm of your hand and he's never going to let you go. If you've never surrendered to that or given yourself over to him, do do that right now. You can do that right now by saying this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. Lord, come into my heart and make me whole and new. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that you rose from the grave on the third day. And because you live, I live. Lord God, now walk with me all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour his favor out on your lives. May you walk in grace, go in grace, and prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. We love you guys. Have a great night. We'll see you Sunday morning at 1030.